that. Hey, Derek, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Thanks, Jack. Happy to be on. Glad to have you on. I think this is a great topic. Um, we uh, we chatted before. I was actually on your podcast on, on college, college student success and uh, really enjoyed that conversation. I think I'm going to really enjoy this one, too. Uh, we're going to be talking about mental health today from a recovery standpoint and from a wellness maintenance standpoint. And I agree with uh, the proposal you sent to me when you asked me on the air that this is a hell of a good time to talk about this. So just kind of leading off before we get into the kind of agenda, I want to start out with a discussion on maybe why this is so timely a little bit uh, with COVID and the lockdowns. My opinion is you can't take people that are used to freedom, stick them into small apartments for long durations and compound that problem by destroying the economy and not expect people to have mental issues because of it. And I think that one of the things we need to probably get out from underneath the, uh, the floor mat real quick is that doesn't mean something's wrong with you, that you have a, a, a mental problem like from a stigma standpoint. Like if you take somebody and put them in a cage and, and, and poke them with sticks for a month, they're going to have they're going to have issues to deal with, and that doesn't mean there's something wrong with the person. That means that something's happened to the person, and and we kind of need to come at it from the standpoint of if if you broke your leg and we put a cast on it, we wouldn't stigmatize you because your leg broke. Does does that make sense? Absolutely. And uh, first off, let me apologize for the dog. The right. delivery driver will be gone in a sec. Um, Yes, I completely agree. Uh, we're going to talk a lot about psychiatric rehabilitation today, which is uh, the department I work in and where the school of helping people I come from. And uh, one of the big three goals, there's three goals, and one of them is community integration. And it was, you know, founded on the principle of people that were locked up, that were, uh, you know, basically committed to these giant, large government-run asylums, um, back in the day because they thought there was no cure for mental illness and that they would be safer there. And it was, you know, as a state-run facility is wont to do, especially large-run, uh, fell into neglect and decay and budget overruns, and they became really inhospitable places. And um, this, this practice of psych rehab was founded by people in recovery from mental illness because there were just, like, no alternatives uh, that were really suitable for helping them with recovery. And they made one of the goals community integration because they were coming from a place of being locked up. And they're like, that didn't work. Yeah. We know that we're capable of, of not only, like, surviving in the community but thriving. Uh, so, yeah, I, I definitely think that's a great way to start off. And uh, I, I'm, glad to ha I'm glad to be on at this time. I, I've been thinking about, you know, over the years – coming on the show or asking you about it, but I, I thought this was uh, just the, the op most opportune type. Cool, man. So let's start off with what is psychiatric rehabilitation and how did you get involved with that? Okay. Yeah, I'll go real quick through this. So um, when I went to college um, for my bachelor's, it was in the nineties and I, I didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, I was just like, Oh, I'll, you know, get an English degree because I like to read and write. Um, so I had really no direction. I was told, you know, colleges, you have to go to college. I was a product of that. And, um, but along the way, I, I picked up a part time job my senior year working in a group home, uh, for people with mental illness. And, uh, it was good money for a part time job when you were in college. And, uh, when I graduated, I had no idea what I was going to do. So, 
they at the at the place I worked, it was a nonprofit, offered me a, a full time job. So you know, I said, okay, great. Um, and so the people that lived there, it was like basically a 24 hour supervised group home where people came from state psychiatric hospitals like we were just talking about, uh, where they were discharged. A lot of them had been there years, maybe even longer, um, and needed help with skills like how to, you know, you clean the house and go food shopping and take meds and kind of that type of thing. So, um, it was good actually just out of college. I learned a lot of life skills early on in that job, like, you know, how to cook and, and home maintenance because, you know, they were depending on you. Um, but it was also very like custodial, like you were expected to kind of like take care of them and uh, not much else. Okay. So uh, it was uh, they use like a lot of behavioral techniques, you know, like, oh, if you do something wrong, we're going to punish you and, you know, rewards and it just, it doesn't really work well, especially with adults. Um, and here I was this like, you know, 21 year old or whatever telling these 50 year olds, like you need to do this. And if you don't, you're going to have an extra chore tomorrow. And, you know, while you're at it, give me those cigarettes because you can't have them. You can only have them when we, we say you can. It was when you're in the job, it's your first job. You just think that that's how things go. Right. Um, so I was in that job a little bit and then I got a job, uh, sort of a promotion, but at a different agency doing similar work in a group home as a senior counselor. And right off when I started working there, I could tell things were different. And I was like, oh, this is weird. Like, you know, they don't like hold their cigarettes. They just let them smoke whenever they want to. And the reason when I asked is like, they're adults. <laughs> yeah. um, and so I was like, huh, yeah, you know what? They are. And like another thing we did was like we restricted their food in the old place because they were all fat. So like we thought as counselors, you know, young people that didn't know anything, like we'll just like, you know, dole out the food in portions and like they'll lose weight. And yeah, they did. But they also were, you know, they paid for that food. And we had this like locked up fridge that they couldn't get to. And I got to this place and they were like, no, 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 we don't do that. Like, you know, they can eat what food they want uh, when they want because it's theirs. And if, yeah, if there's a problem with somebody eating too much, we're going to give them education and talk to them about mm -hmm. why that's wrong. And maybe the uh, other other people that live there are going to get on them. And actually, that's really effective. And I'm like, oh, I'm like this is actually really interesting. So it was right after I started there that I they had this like agency wide training. And it was an introduction to psychiatric rehabilitation and all of the goals, values, and principles, some of which we'll hit on today. And I sat there in that training. I'll never forget it. I was like, this all just makes sense to me. This is, this is exactly what I want to do. Like, I, I never, and I talked to the, the trainer after that, that training and she is now like still my mentor. She's my dissertation chair. She's helping me get me through this, uh, as a PhD student. Uh, and she was the one that got me into the master's program and, and, and kind of doing what I'm doing now, which is working in the department right alongside her. Um, so. I tell you all that to kind of give an illustration of what psychiatric rehabilitation is. Um, it's, it's helping people with mental illness, uh, set goals and achieve them based on valued social roles. You know, the things in the community that are important to us, right? Being a good parent, family member, being a, a redneck hippie duck farmer, you know, because that's your valued social role. Um, Helping people figure out what those are and then helping them, teaching them the skills and linking them the, to the resources that they need 
to get to those goals. And then when they don't need any more help, we sort of fade away, you know, in an ideal world. But we always remain available if people still need, you know, help at our side. That's well, a very, very interesting answer, and it isn't certainly a way to look at things, but I think maybe a lot of people fail to look at things that way and understand that, you know, just because someone maybe needs uh, even significant help uh, from a psychiatric standpoint doesn't mean that they need to be locked in a room. In fact, that's probably, yeah. as you were inferring there, one of the worst decisions that you can make. Unless that person is a clear and present danger to someone else or themselves, what they need is assistance and counseling, you know, not necessarily, uh, you know, a cage, which I think is the way that a lot of people approach this this mindset, even in an inpatient uh, therapy situation. I have a family member who I've pleaded with to basically get into an inpatient type care, and she's convinced that's the same as being locked up in a, you know, uh, locked up in an institution for the criminally insane. And this is a person that really needs to get her shit together. And it's probably never going to, she's in her sixties now. It's probably never going to happen. Um, but I think that, that stigma hurts both from an observational standpoint, but it also hurts the person that needs the help probably more than anybody else. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I, I did have a disclaimer before this kind of relating to that is that, you know, the, the things we're talking about today, they do relate to mental health. You know, I think a lot of the tips and stuff we're going to talk about are for people with, you know, mild to moderate mental health issues, but people with severe issues, you know, they do need to be under the care of a professional. Um, and this isn't, you know, in any way kind of any medical advice. It's just us, you know, talking, but wanted to say that. Um, I think the, the biggest thing about psych rehab, touching on what you, you, you're, started to talk about was this idea of like, you can't just lock people up and, and along those lines, because what we do now is instead of locking them up because of some of the reasons we talked about uh, is we just give them medication, right? And that's the big one, right? Uh, medication is, is helpful for some. Uh, medication is a form of treatment, right? And it's designed to reduce symptoms. And there are other kinds of forms of treatment too that reduce mental health symptoms. Um, you know, therapy would be considered one. Um, but if you think about going back to what you talked about earlier, like a physical health example, breaking your leg, right? You're a delivery driver, you break your leg, uh, it suffer this trauma, right? Your doctor is going to provide you treatment. He's going to do surgery. He's going to give you pain medication if you need it. He's going to cast it all of these surgical or treatments or procedures, and then he's going to send you home. But once you start to heal a little bit, what's going to happen next? You're going to go to rehab, right? You're going to need to regain functioning of that leg, build up the muscles, get it back to where it once was. And I think the, the biggest thing about what I do is I'm the rehab part to mental health treatment. You know, a lot of times people think, oh, I have this, you know, depression or this anxiety. So what do they do? They go to a doctor and the doctor says, okay, I'm going to give you this med and I'm going to uh, refer you to a, a, a therapist. And, you know, they think that the therapist is important. You know, you can't do the meds without the therapy. And that's, you know, largely true that you can't really, meds alone really don't do anything for most anyone. Um, but, if you think about that person again with the with the 
broken leg, if they didn't have the rehab, they would never, you know, be able to get back to where they, where they once were. Psych rehab is that. It's helping the person get back to functioning the way that they used to be, right? So you go to a, a, any kind of a therapist, um, you know, rehab person, you know, an occupational therapist, a, a PT, um, they'll ask you, what do you want to be able to do, you know, with your leg? Oh, I want to be able to drive again because I value my role in life as an employee, being able to contribute for my family. And it's the same thing with mental health too. Somebody has anxiety, you know, they might get some Xanax, right? And it's like, oh, Xanax is helpful for, for anxiety as a treatment. It reduces the symptoms of anxiety. Um, and you might go to a therapist and talk about ways that you can do deep breathing exercises or talk your way down through anxiety. And that helps to reduce the symptoms. But if you don't do the rehab in terms of, okay, how am I going to get through life managing this anxiety or get through my job or manage this difficult relationship with my spouse or whatever it is, that seems to be the big missing piece for a lot of people that they're struggling to, to, to find. And, um, I, and I, that's what our department does a lot of teaching, you know, the workforce in that type of stuff, how to help people regain these life uh, roles, these social roles that, you know, restore them to the previous level of functioning because, you know, people aren't born with mental illness. Um, it, it develops later in life, usually around, you know, uh, late teens to early 20s. So presumably, you know, they were uh, functioning at some, you know, fairly typical level and got derailed somehow. And and the rehab portion is restoring that functionality. You said something in all of that that made me have two simultaneous thoughts. And it was if somebody has, let's say, a a, a leg injury and they need it and they say, you know, why are you here? What do you want? Right. They say, I want to be able to drive or do my job or walk. Right. And generally, I don't think a person has a problem with making that statement. I want when it's a physical injury. When, When I busted my knee and I couldn't walk, if there was something I could have done to accelerate that process, I would have been happy to do it because I, and if you said, what do you want most right now for this thing not to hurt? So I walk. And what it made me think of that's not related, but is related is there was a, an old movie. I think Tom Selleck was in it called Mr. Baseball or something like that. And he was this, uh, you know, slugger in the in MLB that was in a slump and they traded him to a, t- a team in Japan. And he ends up with this coach over there who had him at a golf course driving range hitting golf balls with a baseball bat. And finally he's like, I want to hit baseballs. So the guy that's his coach over there, this Japanese guy, said, what did you say? He says, I I want to hit. And he says, what did you say? And he said, I want to. And he caught it at that point. He finally realized he actually wanted to hit baseballs again. That he had actually part of his slump was he stopped caring. It just became a job, and he just expected to be able to hit baseballs. He didn't really want anymore. And and what that made me think of was a friend of mine who's dealing with some mental issues. He had a like kind of a break at work. It cost him his job. It cost him his marriage. And he called me a couple of years ago, and I said, "Man, you need to get some some therapy." And he says, "I am, and it's just not helping." And I could just tell in the conversation he hadn't got to the point where he wanted it to work. He had been basically, because he was on some, you know, 
compensation and all for work, he part of that was he had to go to therapy. He didn't go to therapy because he wanted to. He went to therapy because if he didn't, he would lose the money he was getting as part, you know, it was like a basically a medical layoff type thing. And so how important is it that the person in this situation be able to make that statement, I want to and mean it? Uh, it's everything to us. Um, what we teach in, in our department to, to the, the students that are going to come out and work with these individuals in these partnerships, because that is what we, we refer to it as, uh, is that whatever it is you're going to be helping them with has to come from them. Um, and when they set a goal, you know, it's like, you know, basically for regulation and billing, uh, everybody has to have a goal, you okay. know, why they're there. Um, we insist that it's basically written in the first person. Yeah. I will, you know, get a part-time job in the next six months. Not to you know, get. Right. Yeah, not- or, or Derek will get, yeah. because that sounds like it came from somebody else, right? Yeah. Nobody refers to themselves yeah. like that. And that implies like, oh, wait, this plan was written by somebody else. Yeah. Where in an ideal world and in, in a hardcore psych rehab program, the people would be writing their own plans, you know, of what they want and telling us how they think that they should be able to to be able to get it. Right. Oh, I think I need to learn this skill and this skill. And it's us being like, OK, yeah, that sounds great. Here's how I can help you with that. Um, or sometimes they do need help. And it's like, well, I don't even know how to do this. And it's like, that's where we would kind of, you know, help out with the, the goal planning. We don't do any enabling or doing things for people, right? And that was a big difference from the old job I talked about earlier to this one. The old job, we'd like order their meds for them. Just like a simple routine thing because it was, oh, medication is important. And nobody can miss their meds. In the other job with doing psych rehab, we had to sit there and it took time and it was annoying. We had to teach them, ah, oh, you have to call and do this like, you know, teleprompter line. And yeah, you fill in the, re- the prescription numbers and all of these little things that you and I do, you know, back of our head. We don't have to think about it, right? Calling in a prescription on to Walgreens using the automated system. But to somebody that has been in the hospital for 10 years, that is on medication that's dulling their senses and impairing their cognition, that needs to learn this shit in order to get out and be independent and get their own apartment, this is the the critical stuff we need to be teaching people. And to just be like, oh, I'll just do it for you is actually depriving them Mm. of their ability to recover from this mental illness. Um, so that's just like a small example, but it's a lot of that. It's a lot of like the skill teaching on an individual basis because everybody's recovery is is individualized and, and unique to them. You can't do this largely in a group setting. Um, and it's allowing them to to try it and fail and realize, okay, this isn't working now what are we going to try and mm-hmm. kind of steering it in the direction you want it to go? Have yeah. you seen anything that kind of really beefs up this opinion that I have? Cause I'm not a professional. I don't work in this space, but what I, I tend to, to feel that I see is the people that most need help with these issues, especially if we name an issue like depression or PTSD are the ones most reluctant to accept the label and most reluctant to accept the help and the most reluctant to get the help. On the other hand, we have seemed to created this kind of weird concept where it's like you're one of the cool kids if you have a problem, and there seems to be people that want to label themselves with these things that don't really seem like it is their problem. It, it, like they, they clearly have some problem, but 
you know, you'll hear the, 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 the woman, for instance, that had a bad breakup, but it wasn't like the guy was beating her or anything. Now she's got PTSD. Um, I, I've seen things like that. And, and I know I don't want to ever tell anybody, um, you don't have a problem because they may. I don't, I, I don't walk in their shoes, but because you took an online examination or something made by a 15 year old kid to get clicks does not mean you have PTSD. And like, is there's kind of this weird thing where some people want to have these problems and other people that actually have them don't seem to be able to accept that they do. Yeah, I would say, I'd hmm. say for the ones that sort of are mislabeling themselves, it's, uh, what I mentioned earlier, lack of a valued social role. They're searching for that role, right? Um, and they're trying on these different things. It's like, because it, it has become a lot less stigmatizing in recent years to talk about mental illness, especially young people, um, and be okay with being like, yeah, I have a depression or whatever. It's becoming more acceptable, right? And I think it's maybe even swung a little bit, you know, like you say, and maybe it is a little like, well, I mean, like, I just think if you actually have a problem like this, you're probably not going on Facebook everybody telling every, every day telling everybody about it and identifying as this person with this illness constantly, right. you know. Um, and I see that, and it, it to me it's very troubling, and I feel like, well, there you probably do need some assistance here. There probably is a problem, but it's almost like you've taken this problem, called it something else, like you said, mislabeling, and now you've created an identity around it. And like this, 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 this lady that's a, a family member that I really feel could use more help than she's gotten is a perfect example of this. She has everything there is, but if you say she needs help, you, you're, you're, you're calling her crazy. You see what I mean? Like, and it's very difficult to deal with a person like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we use in, the, we teach about, uh, the stages of change in our department, um, which you probably know on a similar level, you know, talked about something else, but it's like the person, you know, like you're talking about with your relative, you know, sounds like in a pre-contemplation stage, they're yeah. not even thinking about changing, making any changes. Right. And when somebody's like that, there's really not much you can do other than be there for when they're ready to change. Yeah. <laughs> um, and <laughs> So the next stage, though, or maybe this she's in this stage and just isn't showing you this, is yeah. contemplation, right? Okay. She thinks that there might be an issue sometimes in moments of clarity, realizes, yeah, I do got this thing, but isn't ready to talk to you about it. Yeah. And there are other times when she doesn't believe it at all, right? Contemplating, right? And we spend a lot of our time when we try to make big changes in, in our lives, mental health or otherwise, contemplating, ah, should I do it or shouldn't I? Yeah. Um, as now, this, somebody, this lady's in exactly the exact same situation that this guy I talked about was, totally different mm -hmm. way, exploded at work, got fired, smart enough to get herself onto disability that way, but now it's, it's because she's sick and she has allergies and all this other crap. She is going to counseling because it's mandated as part of her thing. She's on, like, permanent disability now, but going to college to further her degree to a master's degree in a schedule that will probably take her till she's 80 to have it. <laughs> and it's yeah. just one of those things where, and, and my wife struggles with it cause she'll talk to her. And, and if you, you say anything that you can do more than you're doing, um, she flips out. And, and what I've tried to explain based on my understanding here is you're literally telling, it would be like me telling you, your name's not Derek. You're not Derek. You're somebody else because that person's so identified with the, 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 the thing they've created for themselves. 
anything that you tell them, you, it's like me saying, you don't live in your house. You like Almost like you were an Alzheimer's patient. You know, if you've ever talked yep. to an Alzheimer's patient, you try to tell them the reality around them, they get very, very angry. Uh, and yeah. I've, you know, I've learned with that, you just roll with it. I'm going to Disneyland tomorrow. That's great. <laughs> you know, you just, it, 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 that's a different situation you can just roll with when you're trying to help someone that, you know, otherwise uh, could be okay. It's, it's just a difficult struggle. And I think that kind of what I'm leading up to this with is it is difficult to be the family member or the friend of someone going through this as well. And that takes a toll on people. And people need to be aware of that, that they can literally be pulled in and they need to think about their their own mental state when dealing with someone who has issues, especially if they're not ready to deal with their own yet. Because you can care more than they do. And Absolutely. I mean, relating it to Alzheimer's again, my, my wife had her father in the car at one time and he answered a phone that wasn't there and had a conversation. Yeah. And she said for about five minutes, I wondered if I was crazy. Because it's so bizarre. Because they fully believe it. You know there's no, he had his hand up. He's talking to somebody on the phone. There's no phone. Mm-hmm. And I think that people do need to be cognizant of that, that you can only do so much to help people. And you can you can push yourself into a world far enough where it begins to pull you down if you're not careful. Absolutely. So I hear kind of two two different two different issues there. So one, like the person like that is resistant to change that really does believe it in themselves. I'm sick. I can't change. Right. Like yeah. we were talking about the, the female that is a label in and of itself that they have assumed, right? Sick person, um, person that needs to be cared for, person that, you know, needs everyone's help. And it's, they'll cling to that because it's very, you know. No uh, matter what happens to anybody, my situation is worse. Mm -hmm. That person. Yeah. And I've worked with a lot of individuals like that, super resistant to change, you know, any kind of goal, that, that you, you try and, and try and work with them on. And, uh, you know, I found it really is just kind of more, all you can do, like I said, somebody in that situation is if, if you're so inclined is to continue to try and get to know them in a way that gets at well, what's the real social, real, real social role that you value here. What do you really care about? You know, that, that the society cares about because society doesn't value the sick person. Uh, the sick person is like a protective label, so you don't have to actually take any responsibility here. Yeah. Um, and so the only way I found is to find, to, to get at a little deeper through, you know, building a partnership with that person. And because it's my job as a practitioner, yeah. um, to, to try and find out, well, what do you really care about here? You know, yeah. and maybe you'll get after getting to know them a little bit and building a rapport. So you uh, sound like you challenge people. And, and how important is it then for a practitioner to challenge people? Because what I think happens to a lot of these folks that end up in something that's mandated, state funded, et cetera, is they become, well, to this counselor that maybe doesn't really care that much. It's just a job, a, a billable hour. So yeah. they don't, if, they, if they're not going to be challenged, then they're going to, I think actually therapy, you tell me if I'm wrong here, I think improper therapy can make a situation like this worse because it reinforces that attachment to being the sick person. Yes, definitely. And challenging it, challenging them is, is the rehab, right? Because the rehab is hard, you know, doing those exercises, sure. strengthening that leg muscle. If it's not hard, 
then the, the rehab practitioner there isn't doing their job. Yeah. Um, so it's similar in that regard, I would say. Yeah, you should be um, on the treadmill for 45 minutes and in the whirlpool for five, not the other way around. Yeah. It's not going to be easy, you know, and I think that that's why I kind of uh, psychiatric rehabilitation, I would think, would appeal to this popular to your audience because they are a self-reliant group. Like they don't expect it to come easy, I don't think. And it is a lot of just very much voluntary interactions, you know, um, people that want the help or the ones that we want to help. We don't do any, you know, kind of involuntary stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's self-directed. There's all self-determination all along the way. You know, we set this goal together because you wanted to set it tomorrow. You want to set another goal. Okay. We're going to do that then. <laughs> um, and we do challenge people to getting back to what you're saying. Um, what we do is uh, somebody in pre-contemplation, like we're saying, we would do something it's called motivational interviewing. Uh, and it's, it's, you don't actually do any interviewing, but think of somebody with like a drug problem, right? That doesn't want to admit they have a drug problem. You know, everybody could think of somebody like that. Yeah. You know, so we, we end up with people like that all the time in our programs. And it's like, well, why are you here? Oh, I'm here because my family member wants me here. It's like, okay, you know, so they don't actually have any intrinsic reason. So I would work with them on basically what motivational interviewing does is it, you try and get somebody to talk themselves into changing. You don't give them sit there and give them reasons why they need to change. You might develop some kind of discrepancy between what they are saying and what their their behavior is and then sit back and see what they do, you know? But it's a lot of rolling with that resistance like you said, when they're not ready to change, they're not ready to change, don't push it. But when they are giving you that window to try and to be there for them, to to instill some self-confidence. I, I believe you can do it. And also to basically get them to, to kind of see, you know, and and explore some of their ambivalence that they have that they're willing to, to talk to you about. And maybe they're going to leave and, and think about that and come back the next day and be like, you know what, I think I am ready to, to do this thing now. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so... What, a, what let's take a look at this from a standpoint of how this all fits with preparedness and self-reliance since this is the survival podcast. Yeah, so I was talking a little bit before um the 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 all actions are voluntary things. So a lot of people coming out of these involuntary institutions like a hospital come to a place like in a psych rehab facility um, or any mental health, you know, nonprofit these days are all going to be, you know, voluntary programs. Um, but we kind of take it to the next level in that we are person centered um, where a lot of like programs would maybe say they are, but much more agency centered. Like this is how we run things here <laughs> um, or uh, or uh practitioner center, you know, like I'm the doctor, this is what you're going to take now. Um, we're very much client centered in that we'll kind of really direct the services in a way that you want to get them in a way, you know, that's most, uh, accommodating as flexible as we can be. Um, another big focus that I think kind of goes with something your audience really believes in is this focus on career development, work and school. Um, we don't believe people should just sit back and collect a social security check the rest of their lives. Uh, we see social security 
Security is very enabling, um, where we'd much rather, especially a younger person that just got diagnosed, that is, you know, being told by their their psychiatrist, like, oh, you should you should apply for some disability here. We would be like, uh, do you sure you really want to do that? Because the incentive to really build a career disappears when they start drawing that check. Um, I've seen it time and time again. So we focus on the, the idea that like working is a valued social thing to do in this world. Going to school is valued. Uh, what are you thinking about in terms of doing these right now? Not like, are you thinking about them, but what are you, you know, because the expectation is people should be working. People should be going into school. People should be doing something. If they are working, then hopefully they're happy doing what they're doing. If not, then that's the, the, the career development that needs to kind of happen. Um, I think there's a big focus on wellness. And uh, I know you've talked about wellness uh, on a couple of different shows. I, I went back and looked uh, and you talked about it in different domains and, and we do too. Uh, we use this uh, eight dimension of wellness model that looks at people beyond just their illness, right? Emotional health is, is important, um, but wellness is the opposite of illness. And it's a much more strengths focused way of working with somebody that kind of builds upon the things that they already know how to do, do well, and uh, kind of are, are part of who they are, right? If we are talking to somebody about their emotional health and it's, it's, it's suffering right now, it actually might be tied to another dimension of wellness, like financial uh, or spiritual uh, or occupational, you know, there's eight of them. Um, so wellness, I think really thinks about the person as more than just, you know, one aspect and really understands this interplay between mental illness and how it really might just be the fact that you're not working right now and you're feeling really bad about yourself because you're not contributing to your family because you really value being a, a contributor, a contributor to your family, being able to provide for them and not doing that is killing you. Uh, so I just think it, it, when it, as I've grown to, to listen to you more over the years, I'm just like, you know, a psych rehab, I think would really make sense to somebody like Jack based on your, your belief in self-determination, voluntarism, wellness, uh, beyond just thinking about mental health in a, in a box, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So a person that maybe feels they need to get some help, what, what should they do? How do they, how do they kind of start out? You know, because I think a lot of people have a big apprehension of if I even say I need help, then I'm labeled, then I'm going to be, they're going to come get me, take me away or lock me up or something. And it really isn't the case. There's a lot of different, I guess, levels of, of care. So how does a person initiate that? Yeah. I mean, so much of that is, is, is kind of regional, but you're right. Like it's kind of cliche to say like asking for help is the first step kind of thing, but it is the most important step. It is the step that determines the next step. Right. Um, I, I, I don't have a mental illness myself, but I'm in recovery for an alcohol problem. And I could say like the day that I was like, I'm ready to get some help. <laughs> um, the anniversary is actually coming up. It's been 13 years, 12 years. Uh, and that day just, it, it's etched in my memory because everything was different after that day, you know, because 
for me, it was about keeping the social role of like, I had just met this woman who was like really important. I knew like if I kept this behavior up, I was going to lose her. And I knew she was the one and she ended up being the one. She's my wife now. Hmm. Um, and so like everything changed after that day because I was like, I need some help. And she was there to help me. And then I also that day, I remember just I, I called everyone that was important to me in my life. They all knew I had an alcohol problem, yeah. <laughs> but I called my dad. I called my brother, you know, and I just told him, like, listen, I got this thing I need to I need to I need to get some help with. And they're like, sure, that's, you know, anything you need. Yeah, it makes me think of the, <laughs> it sounds totally overrated. It makes me think of the Elton John movie that came out last year where he like. He, he walked to the phone like a hundred times and when he was all down on himself, he finally calls his mom and says, mom, I'm gay. And she says, well, of course you are. Yeah. Like, I think there's yeah. a lot of people have problems like that. And they think like, no one knows I'm hiding it well. And they think when they come out with their problem, everyone's like, oh man, I didn't know. And people are like, well, of course you do. It is so scary though, Jack. Before I bet you, it is. It, before you take that step. And then once you take the step, it's like, oh. You know, it's like jumping into the, the deep end when you're a kid and thinking it's so scary. And then you do, and you're like, oh, well, okay. The deep you end's know. awesome, right? You right. Know what I mean, but like, and, and then you're like, yeah, now you're like out. And if you're, you know, once you kind of figure things out a little bit, now it becomes a strength of yours. Now people look up to you for having this thing and, and kind of dealing with it head on, you know, and it just kind of builds on this like positive momentum trail, you know, right then and there. Um so what what can people do? So that is the first step, right? And there's a lot of things that people, you know, may need help with, right? Again, if you have a serious issue, and what I define as serious is if, if you're thinking about, you know, taking your own life or, or hurting somebody else, you know, that that branches into the suicidal ideation, you know, mm -hmm. type of territory that might require some sort of, you know, more formalized intervention. That is where if you start saying things like that, they will come get you. Mm -hmm. uh, especially if you say things like, I'm feeling kind of like I want to hurt myself. And if I did, I would go do this. Like if you, have you, have an, have you have a plan. plan to go with it. Yeah. Right. Then they are going to send the, 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 the people with the quote unquote straight jackets, although they don't use those anymore, but you'll definitely attract some attention. Um, but short of that, you won't. Right. And yeah. so if you're not, you know, if you're feeling any short of that, you don't have anything to fear by talking to, you know, a crisis warm line. So it's not a hotline, but a warm line where people, uh, it's not for emergencies, but it's for people that it's an emergent type of situation. Like, yeah, sh things are shitty right now. It would be good to talk to somebody. Um, they're not going to call, they're not going to, you know, report you, uh, unless you start using language like mm. wanting your life. Right. Um, but there's a lot you could do yourself too. You might need help with trying to formulate the goal, right? What it is you need help with, what it is that social role you're trying to, to get to or restore back to the way it was working in the past. Um, a lot of people need help with the accountability piece, right? They, they know they have this problem. They don't need, they need to do these things, but it's hard, like any kind of change. Um, so a, a practitioner can help with a lot of that. Um, a lot of it can be done, though, by people that are in recovery themselves. Uh, psychiatric re rehabilitation places a big emphasis on self-help. Um, the most famous self-help is, is AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, right? Um, which, science, empirically, the, the outcomes are 
not very good <laughs> um, in terms of the amount of people that achieve sobriety, complete sobriety is the goal of AA versus the amount of people that use it. Um, so as the researcher in me is like, that's eh, hard to recommend it from So that. I have a devil's advocate question though. How, how skewed is that number based on people that are in AA because they were mandated to go in there? Like, has anybody uh, ever, has anybody ever done a study and said, here's, here's the results for people who voluntarily decided one day, I'm going to die if I don't do something and voluntarily walked in and said, I want help versus someone who got a DUI. So they were thrown in there by a judge. Yeah. There's definitely a, a bunch of those. Um, I don't know the research enough to be okay. able to make, uh, a, an informed guess, but from my experience of attending AA, Anecdotally, um, it didn't really work for me. Uh, the, but what I, where I see it work for people is because they meet other people there and develop a network of support. So if the person goes to AA, it's not the message of AA that matters. It's the person you're sitting next to that you talk to afterwards when you're sharing coffee and ends up becoming a person that gives you a ride home. That ends up becoming somebody that you call when you're struggling. Okay. So like that's where I see the value in AA is for people that have been running with a circle of friends that are probably not going to be picking up the phone when you need that kind of help because they're going to be wasted. Um, if you need a new set of friends that are going to be there for you um, and you're willing to put in the work, uh, they you can get a lot out of AA um, from the friendships and the network and the support building. Um, so once you realize, oh, I need this help and you realize you start to realize, oh, I'm actually not alone, you know, and that was a big reason I started my podcast that I had you on. Um, part of it was actually mainly because of your five minutes with Jack series, okay. uh, in, in building a personal brand. And, and that was a big reason why I did it too. But it was like, you know, people need to know, like, especially college students, like, you know, they're going through this shit and we're all going through something right now. Um, so yeah, we got to get through school, but we got to get through, we got all these other things that are important to us that we need to achieve too. And, uh, if you achieve those things, actually, maybe it'll end up making you a better student, right? Um, so if you wanted specifically help from a psychiatric rehabilitation practitioner or person, um, it's very like pockets of it. Um, like where I am around Rutgers is, it's very well known. Uh, it's also called psychosocial rehabilitation because we, our school is, is really actually, I think the only school in the world that offers a, a, a full career ladder of psych rehab degrees from associates all on up to PhD, which I'm in. Um, but there's the psych rehab association, PRA. Um, and a lot of states have their own local psych rehab associations. So if I was in Texas and was like, wanted to, to work with a psych rehab, you know, somebody that it worked, that, uh, kind of upholds these values, I would go to the Texas State Psychiatric Rehabilitation Association and find out what organizations belong to that. And I would start there if I was looking for help, like for a loved one or somebody. Um, but if I would also just like go through the self-help network, you know, just there's these networks are like super easy to access now, thanks to the Internet. New Jersey has this self-help clearinghouse and it's just like every self-help group under the sun. You know, these super rare diseases where it's like, oh, I'm the only one in a million that have it. It's like, well, there's seven billion people. So, um, <laughs> you know, there's a number of them that have found this little website on this tiny little dark corner of the web. And 
they're the where you're going to find out like, oh, I'm not alone. And this person is sharing this resource and this person's telling me about this. And it's coming from people that are experts in this because they live with it every day. Um, so those are the, the, the ways that I would go about it. Uh, if things are going like generally okay, uh, and you're just kind of looking to keep yourself okay, right? Um, I would advise or suggest looking into something called a wellness and recovery action plan. Uh, you did an episode a couple of weeks ago talking about, uh, ec- economic preparedness plan or something like that. Um, and I remember listening to it knowing we were going to be talking like, this is a great lead into this, you know, thinking about, you know, planning for when things are going to be bad, knowing like they might get bad in the future. Um, but also just having a plan for, you know, keeping yourself, you know, when, when times aren't going bad, right? Uh, so wellness and recovery action plan is, is basically, it's a document. You could Google it. Uh, you know, they're all over the web, but the basic components of it are, you know, look, taking a hard look at yourself and, and writing down, you know, what do you look like when you're well? You know, oh, I do these things, you know, I'm, I'm talk to these people regularly and, you know, these are the, the tools. It's called your wellness toolbox. You know, these are the tools I have at my disposal when I'm struggling with, you know, any particular thing. You know, I go for walks, I journal, I go fishing, I, you know, I use Xanax because that is a tool amongst all these other ones. If it's used correctly, you know, it could be super beneficial. Um, and then these are the things, these are my triggers. You know, when this happens, it's going to set me off, you know, when this happens. And this takes some, some experiences and some, some time in your recovery to, to learn and become self-aware enough to know these things. But over time you do. And so these be your triggers. And then this is what I look like when things start to get bad. And if this happens, you know, these are some things that you might want to do, you know, or I might want to do. Maybe I'll call, you know, do an extra session with my therapist or reach out to this person. And it also will list, you want to share it with a loved one. That's a good idea. Things not to do like, I'm going to avoid this person when things get bad. Uh, I'm going to avoid, you know, I don't want to go on this medication because I tried that the last time and it didn't work. Uh, I don't want to, if things get really bad and I need, you know, to be in a hospital, I don't want to go to this hospital. So it sort of functions like an advanced directive would in the medical world as well. You know, what are your wishes for how you want to be, you know, supported when you are not in your best of mind? Um, and people are, are going to be helping you along the way and you need that extra support. So that's another thing that somebody can do. And that's a lot, you know, a lot of it can be self-directed. And, um, that's another thing I like about a, a lot of this is if, if you have the awareness and you have the support, um, you could do a lot of the work on your own, but there's definitely a lot of, uh, to be gained from professional help as well. Kind of how do people figure out like, where's the difference? Where, where is that line? Like, where can I kind of work on myself and where do I need to start engaging with someone that's more of a professional? I'd say if it's, if it's really impacting your, your day to day life functioning, then it's worth talking to a professional about, you know, if it's impacting your, your ability to work, your ability to go to school, your ability to, you know, take care of your family, whatever those essential life roles are that you need to be doing, then it's worth exploring, you know, and understanding like it's a process, you know, there's in recovery, we don't actually, 
ever get to the recovered <laughs> point because we realize like you, you use the slippery slope analogy a lot, you know, that we're just, it's, we're life's constantly in motion. So the minute we sit at the top of our peak and say, Hey, we recovered is the moment the shitstorm hits. Sure. <laughs> um, so it's really that mindset of like, we're always continually learning and improving. So that's just starting out the process. That might be like one of the first things you do is learning. Like, when do I need to reach out to, uh, my doctor for, for help or my therapist versus when can I go to my support group? And figuring out that line is going to take some time. It's going to be different for everyone. Um, but that would be the way is, is sort of that trial and error and, and knowing that hopefully you have some supports in line if, if you should fall back, you know. Can you talk for a minute about maybe self-therapy for people that don't really have what we would classify as a problem in quotes? And what I mean by that is if I was uh, – if you came over to my house and you just happened to interrupt me and I was doing push-ups and sit-ups and, and what have you – and you said, well, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm, I'm working on my physical health. I, I do a workout every day. I'm sorry, Derek, but you got here and I've got like five minutes to go. So I'm, I'm not going to quit now. I'm going to finish. You know, you'd say, well, good. He's doing pushups, right? Even though probably the worst thing in the world for a rotator cuff, but you'd, you'd, you'd say, well, that makes sense. And you wouldn't say, well, what's wrong? You see what I'm saying? You wouldn't be like, well, what's wrong with you? Are, are your pecs weak? Are your triceps weak? If, if, if I, my whole point was to maintain my physical strength, you would say, well, that makes perfect sense that you'd work on it. And I think that mental health is one of those things that we should do like that as well, um, both from a, just a standard maintenance standpoint and then maybe from some level of our own behavior modification. You cannot have a clinically diagnosable disorder and still have a behavior that's negative in your life. Um, for a while, I was in a habit of cutting my wife off, and it was really pissing her off. I mean... That's a great way. To, if, if Guys, if you've not yet had a great long-term relationship, let me tell you, cutting them off, even if you did it because you knew what they was going to say, is not a good idea. So she got really pissed about it, and I said, well, I'm going to change that. And she, I, you know how women are. Of course you are. Sure you are. Whatever. I put a freaking rubber band around my wrist for like two weeks. And every time I looked at that rubber band, it was a reminder, shut your fucking mouth, right? I mean, that's what it was mm -hmm. for. So that's a level of like a behavior modification that didn't mean that I had some sort of, you know, clinically diagnosed disorder that I needed a support group for, but it was not making my, my marriage better. So I took a step to modify that. I talked to a gal one time about this that, that I knew did daily meditation. And she thought it was a stupid idea until I pointed out, well, isn't that what you're doing with daily meditation? If, if you're not working on your mind, what are you working on? So isn't there a place for this type of thinking for people that are not trying to pull themselves away from you know, suicide or something or from a, an addiction or from a depression, but just, just to maintain and have a better life because they have better mental health? Absolutely. You know, and that's, we talked about recovery a good bit during this episode. And now it's a good time to kind of come back to the idea of wellness. And so we talk about wellness a lot in terms of, again, the opposite of illness and framing it in this way of like the positive things that you do, daily lifestyle type of stuff to keep you from going to the point where, you know, you're going to need to 
see your professional or, you know, kind of go back to any kind of crisis situation. So that's where I come from in terms of thinking about the different dimensions of wellness and the things that you do to stay healthy in those areas. And you brought up, you know, the, the rubber band. That's exactly what I would be teaching. So when we think about wellness, we actually use a wellness coaching model. So if you think about a coach, there, they would be that person kind of standing by your side. You mean like, all right, this is how I'm going to help you train for this, right? This is how mm-hmm. I'm going to, you know, you, you help you stop talking from your wife. Have you tried this? Have you tried this? All right. I want you to try this, this rubber band thing. And I want you to come back next week and tell me how it went. Um, so it's a, a bit of a mind, mindset shift from, uh, you know, a, a caseworker or a therapist type of relationship. Um, to a coaching relationship, but that's what we do with people is we sort of coach them on these healthy habits. It might be setting an alarm every day to get your ass out of bed one hour early to work on that side hustle. Um, it might be, you know, the deep breathing or meditation. Um, the more of these things that you can do for yourself during COVID for me, it's been journaling. Like I was always like a, uh, once in a while type of journaler. Like I said, I like to write, but kind of I've been writing a dissertation, so I can't really uh, write a lot of extra. <laughs> um, but during this whole pandemic, I, I wrote every single day in my journal. And it wasn't something like I made the conscious decision like, oh, got a pandemic, better bust out the journal. Uh, I just sort of gravitated towards it because I was feeling extra stress. And I knew that in times of stress in the past that that worked for me. So I busted it out one day and it sat on my desk ever since. Um, so it's becoming in tune with these things that, that work for you. If you are self-aware, you know, knowing things like, ah, I have this issue of cutting off my wife, environmental modifications like that work great, you know, because they don't fail us. You know, your smartphone can be a, a great habit breaker or habit instiller, depending on, you know, what you want to use it for, uh, in a lot of different ways. I'm trying right now with the screen limit one, you know, because of, you know, all of us could probably spend less time on our, on our phones because that's a good like behavioral technique. It's like, ah, you know, I need that little like annoying thing being like, oh, you've been on the phone for an hour today. <laughs> um, because it is like sort of the, 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 the self-awareness that I'm lacking sometimes when I get lost in Twitter space, um, to be like, ah, I, I should be doing something else right now. So I think that, that what you're saying, like the rubber band idea is a good microcosm, you know, a good example for, you know, other things you could do from a healthy lifestyle, daily maintenance type of things, um, thinking about wellness, you know, across all of these different dimensions. So. If, if you don't need your help, if you don't need help, but you're in a situation, you know, I've kind of talked about a couple of people I knew, and, and, and one of them really seems to have put his life back together. But how can you help a person that you care about that's dealing with something where you know something needs to happen? Yeah. Um, there's a couple of things you could do. I think the biggest thing you can do is being there for them, you know, um, being there for them in a way that's that's healthy for you, right? So... There's definitely situations where people can abuse that, but as long as you're able to provide it, being able to communicate to that person like, you know, I know things really suck for you right now, and if you need anything, let me know. Um, that that goes a long way in helping, you know, just reaching out to people. 
even if they haven't reached out to you lately, because it's hard for them to pick up the phone right now. Um, so that's, I think, the number one thing you can do. Um, recognizing the limitations of what you can do. We talked about the stages of change earlier. If they don't want the help, you, there's very limited things you can do. And in that case, it's best to kind of, you know, be able to help, you know, put, keep yourself in, in tip top shape mental health wise so that when they are, or if they ever become ready for the help that you're able to provide it. Um, we use the stages of change in the mental health world as sort of like the vital statistic for mental health. You know, when we're ready to work with somebody, you take their blood pressure, you know, uh, we would take their stage of change and be like, you know, how are you feeling about working on this goal today? And if they're like, yeah, I'm ready, let's do it. It's like, okay, great. You know, let's get into it. And if they're not, you know that you have to kind of alter the way you're going to work with the person that day. Um, so we're being able to kind of understand when somebody's motivated, that's the opportunity. To, that's when you need to seize on it and, take advantage of that when it happens and do what you can. So if somebody is saying like, I need the help, don't assume that they're going to be saying it again tomorrow. Um, I talked about the, the psych rehab, you know, that would be the way I would go if I was looking specifically for a psych rehab pro program, but just other types of general self-help programs geared to whatever it is the person is struggling with, I think are a super awesome uh, either alternative or supplement to any kind of professional therapy. Um, if there's drugs and alcohol involved, uh, recognizing that any kind of underlying mental health condition needs to be dealt with at the same time as the mm. drug problem. Um, there's no, we, everything is integrated now. So we don't, there's no, the evidence that says like, you need to get your mental health issue fixed before we'll help you with this drug problem or vice versa, the way things used to be. Which is uh, the dumbest, most non-common sense thing I ever heard in my life. I, I, yeah. I have a hard time believing that ever was a thing, and it, it's part you of know, my natural distrust of, 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 of authority, right? And you know so, why it's a thing? Because it makes more money. Because we have a division of mental health services, ah. and we have a division of addiction services. Compartmentalization. And, yeah. So now actually we have a division of mental health and addiction services, but even since the merger, you know, some years ago, um, there's still like these, you know, just, it, it's taken a long time to truly integrate is what I'll say. Um, but, uh, recognizing that, you know, it's not like the person has a drug problem because of their mental illness that there's, there's this interplay between the two that you can't separate out when you're, when you're getting help. Um, understanding that family, they used to be seen as like the, the reason for the mental illness back in the day, you know, with Freud and like the mother not caring for you is the reason you have this illness. Now, like psych rehab is the complete opposite. We see family as the biggest ally in our ability to support somebody that's recovering from a mental illness. So realizing that you play a really vital role, uh, for the person that is willing to get the help. Um, as long as, you know, again, it's something that you're able to provide and still care for yourself. Um, real quick on hospitalization. Uh, so if it does come to the point where somebody does need uh, to be hospitalized because they are um, suicidal. Um, so the, the criteria is being able to um, uh, the threat to harm self or others. Like that's the, the key terminology, specifically having a plan 
to, to hurt oneself or others. But there are a lot of other instances people get hospitalized for mental health issues um, where they're a threat to themselves but not because of suicide. Um, so somebody that is so depressed that they haven't eaten in a week is a threat to themselves and potentially could be hospitalized for that. Um, somebody that has is so psychotic, psychotic being out of touch with reality. They have schizophrenia or something like that. And they don't really, they're not able to tell right from wrong, might set, you know, something on fire or walk out into traffic because they are truly somewhere else. That person needs to be hospitalized. So it don't, it don't take suicidal ideation or don't take threat to harm self or others as only meaning suicidal ideation. Yeah. Um, and the last one is would be if I was trying to help somebody uh, get services in the community, I would look for any kind of services where they call them supported services. So like supported housing, mm. supported employment, supported education. Uh, that usually implies that there's like a, a rehab component to, you know, we're offering these skills and how to get you to recover and integrate in the community versus just offering, you know, the basics treatment and making sure you stay out of the hospital type of mentality. Everything we've talked about up till now for good reasons really provide applies to individuals, right? We're trying to help the individual. Is there a way we can take these values and principles to help a community um, as a whole? Uh, because like right now we have a, a, a real situation and I, I put in the show notes today, no matter what you're told by celebrities and politicians, no, we're not all in this together. And there's very different groups and very different communities dealing with this on a totally different level. I do not have uh, a, a big celebrity lifestyle. I'm about maybe a Z-list celebrity if I'm a celebrity at all. But I do realize that even just within this audience, I have it better than a lot of people listen to this show. I have three acres. I have a 2,500-square-foot house. I have two shop buildings. i got ponds in my backyard. I mean, you tell me to stay home, and oh, oh darn, okay. Uh, I don't like people anyway. This is okay. I'm, I'm kind of happy this way. Uh, when I do go out, people socially distance and stay away from me. I'm kind of cool with that. I'm not in this together in the way that they try to mean that with a guy with four kids and a wife that lives in a small apartment in New York City with a draconian lockdown, uh, dealing with 1,200 square foot and six people in that house. That person is in a completely different situation than I'm in. We are not all in this together. That is uh, like flowery speak from someone disconnected with reality. My Nancy Pelosi said that as she ate $18 a quart ice cream out of a $12,000 freezer. No, we're not all in this together. But we, in some ways we are. The, the sentiment is real. How do we help people? Because I'm totally cognizant of the fact that it's probably a lot easier for me to deal with this than it is for somebody that's in that little apartment. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And psych rehab really does work best at that, that hyper local level of, you know, person to person or, or a lot of what you talk about, you know, within your immediate community. Um, I, during this time, because I've had to look after, you know, my own family, you know, I felt have I felt like oh, maybe I haven't been able to give as much to the community as as I I would have liked, but I'm okay with that because what something you talk about is like knowing what my circle of influence is, you know, and I just try and lead at that level. 
Um, I set up Zoom meetings for my different sides of my family because I had a Zoom account and knew it was super easy for me to do. And they, they, they appreciated it so much more than I expected. You know, um, I reached out to my, my son's, you know, second grade teacher because she's just in over her head with teaching from Google Classroom. And I'm like, is there anything I could do to help? Because I teach online all day. And, you know, super appreciative, like just letting people know, like, you know, hey, I could help you with this. And just keeping it very local is, I think, the most impactful stuff that you can do. Um, so that's really in line with a lot of what you talk about in terms of being a good neighbor um, at, at the advocacy level. Um, you know, as I said, we've had this massive, like, closing of state psychiatric hospitals, which is a good thing. Um and I think that we are becoming more tolerant and acknowledging people's, you know, mental health issues. Um, there are certain groups that have a lot, a long way to go. <laughs> um, there's a movement uh, called CIT, uh, Crisis Intervention Training, that is done with police, um, where it's it's a training because apparently a majority of, of police forces are not given mental health training. Um, so they, even if they want to be able to, to work with individuals or recognize somebody as a mentalist, they aren't equipped in a lot of situations. So that's a, something that, um, our department has, uh, you know, been a big proponent of, uh, in terms of having police forces trained in, in crisis intervention training and advocating for, uh, mental health courts in the same way they have drug courts, uh, in areas to, to kind of divert people that have, problems that need treatment and rehabilitation they don't need uh they don't need a jail cell um so those are some things that i think at the community level we could be looking into or kind of seeing or or pushing for um but really it's uh, just kind of being able to to reach out and, and have an influence over the the people that that you're able to and and being that that leader in the times when it's really all the more needed. Gotcha, man. Um, what are some of the most important things you've learned from studying mental health and, and, and your journey through this? I think the biggest thing I learned, it's like s- such a simple thing, but it's so important for people to know is that happiness is a choice. You know, so many people are this, have this helpless mentality of like, uh, I'll never be happy because this was done to me or I have this condition or whatever. I'm forced to endure this when people can take control and make the conscious decision to be happy. And it takes responsibility and work. And sometimes you need to adjust your lens. Like you were saying uh, with one of the people you were talking about earlier, gratitude has really helped me find my way in terms of being content with myself and, and the, the world around me. Um, there's a, a it's a movement called positive psychology. Positive psychology is the study of, I looked this up today, the study of what makes life worth living. <laughs> you believe they have a study, a science devoted to that? It's, uh, um, okay. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, so say what you will about that, but it was uh, founded by uh, or really championed by this guy, Martin Seligman, who's famous for the concept of learned helplessness, which is a concept that's kind of we've touched on it over the course of this talk today. The idea of people giving up because it's like all this shit's happened to me. Nothing's ever going to come of it, you know, and even when help becomes available to you, rebuffing it because it's easier to stay in this, you know, sick person label than it is to make the, the hard changes. Um, so learn helplessness is like well studied, you know, it's shown in, in different animals across, you know, species, you know, they've done it, they replicated it in, in laboratories with like the dogs getting shocked with, uh, you know, if they know, think they're going to get shocked, they just stop trying even when they take the shocks away. Um, well, positive psychology is pushing this idea of learned hopefulness in response to learned helplessness. Uh, I think this just came out with a book. Somebody came out with a book on it recently. Um, so if I, I mean, if I were somebody that was really struggling right now, I would look for a, somebody trained in positive psychology because that's the way I would want somebody to work with me. Um, looking at me through the lens of what I'm good at versus what I'm struggling with in that particular moment, not focusing so much on the symptom as much as what I can do about it. Um, I really, Another big thing I learned from doing a lot of trainings uh, with people, I don't really work in the field. I worked in the field for over a decade helping people every day with mental illness, but now I'm a little far removed as a teacher. Um, so I do these trainings every so often with residential providers, you know, direct care staff about the values of psych rehab. And, and one of the things I've learned there is that, that the people that are the most passionate, the people that I would want to get services from if I needed help at that level – are all people in recovery. <laughs> they are the ones sitting in the front row of these trainings with the shit-eating grin on their face, taking it all in, learning about recovery, where the, you know, I hate to say it, that some of the people that aren't as invested in the back on their phones are half asleep or just would rather be anywhere else. So I want to get help from the people like that in the front of the room getting the training. Um, and those always inevitably seem to be the people that in recovery themselves. Um, they seem to really, they are experts in their own mental illness, at least, um, and really in a unique and valuable position to help others. And I think just as thinking long term, as we see funding continually get cut uh, at the state level and beyond in terms of you know mental health services and whatnot, the peers are going to be the ones. We use peer as a term there, um, somebody that's in the recovery offering help to somebody in recovery, they are going to be the ones I think that pick up the slack and, and really push the recovery movement forward. Um, medication real quick. Um, I, the, the research does not seem to point to long-term use of psychiatric medication as being very good for you, uh, or very good outcomes wise. Um, but the one place I would use psychiatric medication or recommend it if it were my loved one would be somebody that is having their somebody that's young having their first psychotic break. Mm. You know, so somebody that for the first time is, you know, talking to somebody that's not there. Right. Or, you know, that truly is like out of touch with reality. The first time that happens if somebody can get stabilized on antipsychotic medication short term um, to be able to stabilize them and get them in a position to be able to 
learn what's going on right now with them. You know, you have this thing and these are the skills that you're going to need to be able to manage it seems to be really helpful. It's called first episode psychosis research. It's really a, a big topic right now. Um, and the research for medication used short term in those situations seems to be promising. Um, everything else, I mean, I'd think long and hard about it. Um, harm reduction. So the idea of total sobriety is really uh, past its prime. Um, these days, we recognize that very rarely are people ready to just quit using drugs or alcohol and never use again. Relapse is a big part of, of any kind of recovery from mental health, from substance abuse. So recognizing that if somebody's not ready to quit right then and there, that if you can take steps to help them reduce their harm and not die um, so that tomorrow they can come back and maybe be ready for help, that's a good that's a good conversation to engage with people with. Um, if somebody is is using and isn't ready to give up and you're willing to support them in or you're not saying that you're in favor of them using, but you're saying, I want you to stay alive. So use this clean needle instead of that dirty one. Mm. Um, that also really builds a rapport, gets some trust going between that person. To, and if they are ready to change one day, that's the person they're going to come back and ask for help from. Um, so those are some of the things I think in just different areas that I think people are really wondering about. I think when they are unsure of what kind of help they need or uh, fearful that they have this mental illness and don't know what to do is knowing they're not alone, knowing that they can be happy if they choose to and, and work towards it and knowing uh, that I would, that, uh, that there's people out there that are really invested in helping you. And a lot of those people are people with mental illness themselves and to trust them. Um, those would be some of the things I, I think the audience would, would be better off knowing. Well, I really appreciate that. Do you have any resources or anything that people might want to check out? Um, so not particularly. I did want to just mention again, I, I do, uh, my podcast, I've kind of let it drop off a little, but I did an episode a couple of weeks ago, actually. So I still do, I still do it from time to time. Um, it's the college student success podcast. So, uh, if there's any college students out there that are, you know, working on goals and into this kind of stuff, you might find it interesting. Um, I, our, our department, uh, Department of Psychiatric Rehabilitation at Rutgers, we have a grant with SAMHSA, uh, who's the Federal Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Agency. Uh, we have these different mental health, they, they have 10 different mental health training and technical assistance centers across the U.S. Rutgers has the contract for one of them, and they basically do training and technical assistance for all types of mental health things. Um, and they'll do it for pretty much all types of groups. And because it's a SAMHSA grant, uh, it's paid for with your tax dollars. Um, so if there, you, you could search through SAMHSA, uh, the SAMHSA.gov website. Um, you know, if you're paying these taxes, you might as well get some benefit out of it. And they'll do like, you know, set up trainings to do something like, uh, psychiatric first aid as an example. That's another like community. Uh, thing I didn't mention, um, in terms of like something that would be helpful during a disaster situation. Um, 
similar to men, uh, mental health first aid. Um, it's referred to as similar to, uh, you know, regular first aid. Um, but there's different, uh, training and technical assistance centers depending on where you live. You know, we would be in your region that would, uh, potentially work with you if you had a, a larger group, a community group or something like that, that wanted to get training in some area of, uh, related to mental health. Well, hey, man, I really appreciate you being with us today, Derek. Thanks for being on the show. 